You're about to listen to a new episode of Audio Signals. Get ready to take a journey into the known, the unknown, and everything in between. Recorded at no specific point in time nor space, ITSP Magazine's co-founders Marco Cipelli and Sean Martin follow their passion and curiosity as they venture away from the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society to discover new stories worth being told. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at Nintex.com. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. And here we go again. Matt, do I need to introduce you or you're going to do that yourself? I want to dive right in. Um, okay. I, I can introduce <laughs> myself, give like the uh, 20 second version. Um, so my name is Matt Williams. I'm a science communicator and writer uh, for University Today in Interesting Engineering. And uh, very soon I'll be joining ITF, ITSB Magazine, uh, hosting a podcast called Stories from Space. And That's I'm very, very excited 20 about seconds. That. <laughs> Thank you. Me too. Me too. It's <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. I, I started a little bit different today. I usually get a much more proper introduction. But the reason why I did this, even if uh, it is another audio signals, it's still not your podcast, this one, which we will go into more detail as we as we have this conversation, because this is our third podcast that we do together. We got connected for the first episode for an article that you wrote about the future of education, uh, if I remember well, about 50 years from, um, from now. And then uh, we're like, hey, that was fun. And then we, we figure out that you are a, a space uh, journalist. You write for a lot of different publications. You are, again, you're a teacher. So I'm like, hey, come back. And then you came back and we say, hey, let's talk about space and, uh, and ex space exploration. So we went to talk about telescopes and how we actually look back in time with the technology of today and the one that it will be coming up soon and uh, why we do it, which is always the big question about space exploration. People ask why we do that when there is so much things that we need to take care of here on this planet. And uh, we both know there is a strong connection with that. It's about our future. It's very philosophical. It's about research and knowing ourselves and developing technology that we use back here in Hertz. So the bottom line is that we figure out there was so many more story to be told. We planned this episode about exoplanets, which is very exciting. And then, uh, yeah, and then you're like, hey, you have so many stories that are coming from space. So why don't you share them? So very excited about your upcoming podcast here, which we will talk about a little bit more towards the end of this conversation. But uh, why don't we talk about what we were planning to do? 
exoplanets. War are, what are exoplanets? A cool name, no questions about it, but what are they? Oh, well, exoplanet is uh, a short form for extrasolar planet, meaning beyond our solar system. And uh, yeah, so it refers to any planet that is orbiting beyond our, the reach of our sun, anything that is uh, not a solar planet. And uh, there has been some controversy as to, uh, you know, that the, the nomenclature, uh, what defines a, a planet and so forth. But yeah, for for working titles, working purposes, it's any, any body that's uh, large enough to be spherical and is orbiting another star, you know, we'll, we'll leave the rest for the IAU and all of its uh, detractors to iron out over the years because that's that uh, that issue is not over. I can tell you that much. <laughs> but um, yeah, and the rate of discovery is something that has absolutely exploded, and it's going to continue to to go that way. Um, at present, right now, um, there are five thousand and thirty-five confirmed discoveries. Um, but there's an additional 9,000 candidates. So basically we've spotted 14,000 um, possible or confirmed exoplanets so far. That number is uh, expected to get into the, the several tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands in the coming years. And the, the potential for research from that is going to be astounding too. Yeah. Right. Let, let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about why, I mean, we, we assume there is a lot of, planets out there of course i am one of those that don't believe we're the at the center of the universe that's all the that's old news i think <laughs> but yeah, oh, yeah. there are right so w without need to to go there and, and explain that why do exoplanet get so much attention though i mean uh, uh, this is because there are potential of life as well in this in this planet well, yeah, that's well, that's what we're trying to find out mainly. I mean, the um, if you look at the the studies, the literature, you know, and the the regular all the papers that are coming out that that have been coming out for for so very uh, long now, there's always this sort of tacit. If if they're not talking about habitability, they're it, it's in the background. You can tell, right? It's like all these discoveries are pointing the way towards finding life beyond our solar system. And yeah, it's like the more discoveries we make in terms of exoplanets, uh, well, the, the more likely we are to find it. And with more candidates to study, we're going to be able to refine our abilities to look for all those uh, the telltale signatures of life. Because, of course, that's a very, very difficult thing to do, right? Finding out what, what conditions are like on, on a distant planet. Um, but yeah, but that's something we're getting better at. So. There's a lot of excitement that you know, almost almost any day now, probably going to be several more years, but uh, the near future, we are likely to find uh, the evidence of extraterrestrial life. And whether or not it's going to be intelligent, too, that's the big, that's the, the brass ring of all this uh, searching. And, and it, it's right up there with the search for extraterrestrial intelligence as a, as a discipline. Right. Yeah. We hope to be able to find life and prove that life can exist beyond Earth, beyond our solar system. And that, um, you know, the evolutionary pathways have led to intelligence somewhere other than here. 
because of course, yeah, it, it's very encouraging to know that. And, uh, you know, it, it also helps us, uh, we imagine that, you know, we, humanity may not make it well, good to know there's thinking people, creatures somewhere else out there. Maybe, maybe they'll get it right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's for sure. And with all the planets out there, all the galaxy and how much we can, we can now explore, it seems almost impossible that there is, there isn't been another form of life that has developed somewhere else. But I want to do a, I want to be able to make a connection maybe with the with the last episode that we recorded together, which was about the, the James Webb telescope. And we talk about the Hubble and the different way the telescope do work. They don't all work the same way and do not explore the universe in the same using the same technology and how they all eventually come together in a unified study. So I'm, I know I'm making it very, very simple for for the audience, but mm -hmm. Can you explain us how this discovery of more and more exoplanets that happen every day is actually due to the fact that now we do have the technology to do that, and sure. before we couldn't really pierce through the universe the way that we do nowadays? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, uh, I mean, that's one of the main things I wanted to bring up was that, you know, it's, um, it is amazing how things uh, have changed over the past few decades, because um, the very, the first case of an exoplanet detection was 1992, right? Before that, uh, astronomers had, um, uh, there, there were some indications, some telltale signatures, but they couldn't confirm anything. Um, so yeah, back to the early 20th century there, astronomers were sort of uh, detecting uh, uh, the, the way stars moved, it suggested that there might be some planets pulling on them, right? That, that has become a, a main technique for finding them. But yeah, they just, the instruments didn't have the sensitivity. They did not have, you know, advanced computer analytics and, and ways of uh, really cleaning up and, and uh, um, adjusting for or correcting for atmospheric interference and stuff like that. And Hubble was a huge game changer that way because it demonstrated that, you know, we, you put a telescope in space, even if it's gonna have a smaller rear than you know, one of these big, huge ground-based observatories, it's gonna be able to see clearer and farther than ever before. And uh, then uh, Kepler came along and that was the biggest game changer. Um, and it's, if I recall correctly, it went up uh, 2007, I believe, or 2009. So it immediately began to uh, to use a method here. The methodology had to be sort of figured out, tested out. And yeah, this is, Kepler was the, the workhorse for one of the main methods that astronomers had devised, and that was called the transit method, right? So it would uh, be watching huge fields of the sky and uh, monitoring stars, and basically it was, it was looking for any indication that so, that these stars were periodically dimming in brightness, just even so very slightly. And so then, yeah, once once that was determined, it's like okay, let's zero in on that star. Let's uh, let's get a uh, closer look at the what's called the light curve because you know it'll go up and down uh, uh, all the time due to for various reasons. And it's like, if we can show that 
that there is a periodic dip in brightness and it's consistent, like every 16 days or so, that means that something is passing in front of the star relative to us. And then we can draw from that all kinds of data that will, that will indicate whether or not that's actually a planet doing that. And that was, that was Kepler's, uh, um, uh, the, the method it was designed for there. And it, that resulted in thousands of detections. And it's been followed up with uh, TESS, the Transiting uh, Exoplanet Survey Satellite. And James Webb is going to jump in on this too. And uh, uh, ground-based observatories did that as well. It's like, yes, monitor stars by the thousands, look for the dips. And then, yeah, from that, you actually can place uh, estimates on how not only are their planets, how close are they orbiting to their sun, how big are they, and from that for for quite a while now astronomers have, have then deduced it's like well that planet could be habitable because it orbits close enough to its sun that it's going to be warm and it's uh it's the size suggests that it's uh rocky like earth so that's a good bet you know so we we got to look there closer when we can um and, and, uh, and matt sorry because I, I always have uh in my head when, when i make connection like to other story, that's when I remember things. So I remember yes. that this is called the, the Goldilocks zone, right? Yes. When, when the planet, which is not too hot, not too cold, just just right, like 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 the soup. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> in the, yeah. In the story. Yeah, that's yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, so that's another tool astronomers have come up with. It's like, given the class of the star, right? It's like your your bigger white blue ones have these uh, much bigger, much farther out habitable zones. Um, suns like our own, which is a, a G class or yellow dwarf, and and ones that are you know within that range, slightly smaller, slightly bigger. They have good size habitable zones in a, a relatively uh, closer in, whereas uh, your red dwarf stars, which are the most common in the universe, like seventy five to eighty percent of all stars. Yeah, they've got small ones very close in. So that's how astronomers will um, will sort of place a, an estimate on whether or not a, a planet's in the Goldilocks zone. It's like, yes, so this, this uh, distance to that distance, uh, a planet would be getting enough radiation, enough light that it could uh, be warm enough that water, liquid water, could uh, exist on its surface. It wouldn't get you know, just completely evaporated off. It wouldn't freeze. And, uh, yeah. And like I said, you can sort of tell that based on how, how quickly the planet is orbiting the star. How fast is going to go around? It's kind of like, if you look at yes. Jupiter, Mars versus, well, Mars is closing out, but versus planet mm -hmm. earth or Mercury and Venus. Um, I got yes. two, two directions that I, I would like to go with you. So one is a little bit more scientific and technological, and another one is, and I know you like to talk about those things too, a little bit more philosophical about life. I'm going to leave that for, for the next step. Tell mm -hmm. me about the technology, which we kind of mentioned, I think, in the other podcast on how you can find the, the biosignatures of the planet by the, the oh. spectrometers of the lights, and, and because you're just mentioning that with the transit, you only see a shadow. So how how do you know what that planet yeah. is made of? How do you know if that planet is solid rock? 
and water or it has the uh, the signature for for life, which then mm -hmm. will bring me to the next question that is more philosophical. So th let's talk about the yeah. technology we use for that. Okay. Yeah. Well, so detecting uh, dips in brightness, the transit method, that's just straight up optical telescopes, right? You take right. in the light in the visible um, wavelength there and you, yeah, you monitor it very closely for any any curvature, any ups and downs in it, and um, but there's also, and this this brings up uh, you know the other methods. Um, you, there's also spectrometers, right? They will be looking filters on a on a telescope there that will measure how how the light is shifted towards one end of the spectrum or the other, and that's used um, normally. That's used to measure how fast the gal other galaxies are moving away from us, right? It's like if, uh, if a, a light source is moving away, then its light will be shifted towards the red end of the spectrum because the space it has to go through is expanding, so the wavelength gets lengthened. And red is a, a longer wavelength of light than, than the other colors. Um, but if it's moving towards you, it gets shortened and it becomes shifted towards the blue end. So. Scientists uh, determined that this was also a good method for looking for exoplanets. It's like, let's look at these stars, especially uh, faint ones, ones that aren't particularly bright, and the light coming from it. How is it shifting back and forth? Because, as we all know, stars stars move, right? They move in place. They orbit around the center of the galaxy. Now, if they're moving in place back and forth. Um, you'll, you'll see the light shifting uh, to the red end, to the blue end, to the red end, back and forth, and you can tell by how quickly it's doing that, um, how fast it's moving in place, and the you can then discern the fact that there are objects pulling on it. That would be planets. So, yeah, on the one hand, having optical telescopes to read the light is a very good way of, of detecting them and, and determining what size they are, whereas this other method that's called the radial velocity method, that's very good at uh, determining how how massive they are. So that's that's usually the way that the, these two methods together, especially, is how astronomers would determine um, whether or not a planet is rocky. It's like it's this big, it's this massive, that suggests rock. Um, whereas it's like, well, it's you know this big, but uh, and its mass is tremendous, but um, that that would seem uh, that would suggest a gas giant, right? Now, um, but in terms of what we're coming up to now is uh, the direct imaging method where we're gonna be able to look at these planets directly. And the technology there, you've got your your, your spectrometers, you've got your, uh, your optical light, you've got your, um, another tool called a coronagraph, which blocks out light. And that will be used to block out the light of a star so that we can actually see the light shining onto the planets that orbit it. And then when you measure that light with a spectrometer, <laughs> and again, it tells you how, you know, the color of the light is, is all broken down. And it's like, well, that corresponds to certain chemical signatures. So it's like there's carbon in the atmosphere. Oh yeah, we can see that here, light in there. Oxygen, yep, it's fall, there, there's little indications there on, uh, on the light spectrum there, right? Each of these elements corresponds to a different like a spot on the on the color spectrum. And so from that, astronomers are able to say, okay, so we've got carbon, we've got oxygen gas, we got nitrogen, that's everything you need for life to exist there. 
and that's that's what is referred to as biosignatures. But there, there are others as well. It's like, well, we see methane. That's an organic molecule. It's, it is associated with life, and it's created by decaying matter. That's another biosignature. Uh, ammonia is yet another. And, um, yeah, we're, we're getting to the point where we can see those. Um, and it's, it's important to be able to detect light directly from the exoplanet because that's how you get the chemical signatures. Mm. Uh, every other any other way it's just no you you really can't get that data except in very rare circumstances right so th that brings me to my my next question and it's a little bit more philosophical because we we say we're looking for a life or a signature for life that include carbon and that include the presence of a life that is the one we know which is us human animal on this planet and how life works on planet earth but my question is could life be assuming a completely different form where maybe you don't need carbon maybe it lives in methane maybe it lives in uh, liquid gas and that would that be a lesser life than our life but i mean uh, yeah, that... i'm being i'm being polemic here but you know i'm just saying yeah. Should we open our mind a little bit more when, when we look for this? Uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, this uh, you you've, you basically summarized everything the the entire conundrum of uh, you know looking for life out there. And uh, I've I've heard a lot of a lot of people have asked that. It's like why why are we talking about life as we know it? What about life as we don't know it? And and it's like well you're you're right, but. <laughs> You know, any, any complicated question, it's like if you're asking about you know, spiritual truth, it's like, well, long answer, yes, with an if, a short answer, no, with a but. <laughs> right? yeah. Which one do you want? It's like, well, yeah, yes, we should be looking for life as we don't know. And that is actually, um, um, there, there's a lot of literature on that that says how we could look for life as we don't know it. Um uh, but that, that's addressing the main problem. It's like, how do you look for life as you don't know it, right? You, you wouldn't know what chemical signatures were involved. You wouldn't really know what uh, biological processes and byproducts were involved. So that's, that's the short answer of why we don't look for life as we know it right now, because we don't know what to look for. But the long answer is, is like, oh, yeah, but we're, we're, our scientists are thinking on that one hard. Um, when you're limited to looking for planets in, in using indirect measures, which has been true uh, for the most part up until recently, then you got to stick to what you know, right? Mm. And it's, uh, yeah, my, uh, my publisher there, Fraser Kane, at University Today, he's, he's addressed this many times over the years, and he, 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 he has said, and I, I quote this so often, we're currently sticking to the low-hanging fruit approach, right? So mm. we're looking for water, we're looking for oxygen, we're looking for carbon dioxide, we're looking for hydrogen. Um, we're looking for all the things that suggest that a planet would be like Earth because we know that, and we, we know of only one planet where life exists, and that is Earth. So, and, and at the same time, though, it's like, yeah, that's a pretty limited frame of reference here. So let's, let's try to expand the scope you know, what do we know about other chemical domains there? And you're right to mention methane because right now, um, astronomers, they really want to get a closer look at uh, Titan, Saturn's largest moon, because it's got 
all this weird, weird stuff going on. It's got like uh, indications of all this organic molecules and chemistry and on the surface, it's got a dense atmosphere. Um, and uh, the only uh, the only moon that actually has a dense atmosphere. And uh, yeah, and it's it's the way methane works on Titan is exactly the same as how water works here on Earth. So this, of course, is challenging a lot of notions. It's like, is it possible life can exist under those kind of conditions there? It's a lot colder, but, you know, you substitute one one solvent, water, for another, methane. Mm. Um, maybe you could do the same with ammonia. Maybe life could be nitrogen-based uh, and or still carbon-based, but, you know, methanogenic. They, they consume and, uh, and, and break down uh, hydrocarbons instead of water and oxygen. And... So yeah, we we need to investigate that because if we find that there is uh, microbial life on Titan, then we know that it can't exist. So then we'd be, and as for whether or not these are like lesser life forms, I would say absolutely not. You know, you, you, um, it's it's possible that complex life can only exist under certain chemical um, regimes, but uh, you know, we we have no way of knowing that right now and no. and so yeah we gotta i'd say we, we must be open to the idea that 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 life can take many forms and complex life could take many forms um because we've got no real no real reason to suspect otherwise yet uh, no. all we know is we're possible Let's let's look and see if there's more of that out there. There's got to be, right? Yeah, I, I love how you've said that because in a way, as you're saying all these things, I'm thinking like it sounds to me that we're looking for, and, and I like the, the the reference to the low the lower hanging fruit because that's what we know. So in a way, I'm thinking we're looking for other human-like <laughs> form of life out there. See if we can yeah. actually, as many sci-fi movies, you know, I'm thinking Contact, for example, where you can communicate with them in whatever form yeah. it is that there is an intelligence out there so with this as as we get to our 25 minutes into the podcast i think this is a great opportunity and segue to talk about your new show which is called mm -hmm. stories from space and mm -hmm. even the one that we just briefly mentioned those are these are stories from space you know and like a transit a shadow a a biosignature, whether on other on other planets, how that works, and, and the, 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 you know Doppler effect, and how planets, the universe expand or not. I mean, I my brain doesn't even think of how many stories are coming from space, and how short of a time we have been paying attention, right? I mean, if we look in the 1600 with Galileo and the telescope, but that's when oh, we really okay. started. So, really young in a in a way, <laughs> but many stories to be heard. So, yeah, I love the name. I I I know a little bit already about the kind of conversation you're going to have, but please take this opportunity here to to present your vision, to present your show, and uh, make us excited. Okay. Oh, I'll try. <laughs> no pressure. I, uh, I can tell you, yeah. Well, I'm excited to do it there too because, in fact, um, shortly before we were we were, you know, we, we made our introductions there. Yeah, I, I began doing this very thing. It, it all started in uh, like early 2020, 
Um, and I, I felt like, okay, there's a lot I want to say and convey that I don't always get a chance to do in, you know, the, uh, my writing in, in the written articles I put out because of course it's, it's a time consuming process, right? There's a gap between idea or news development and, and when it gets, uh, when it gets out there and gets shared and, you know, I don't always get to, to write about the things I want to, even though I, I do feel very fortunate that, you know, I, I often do, but there's, there's always, you know, so many other issues there. And yeah, there, there were a lot of, uh, there was a lot of anecdotes too, that I wanted to share. In fact, um, one that comes to mind has to do with exoplanets. And that was the story of how Proxima B was discovered how there was a news embargo against it, but myself and a colleague of mine, we went uh, we went digging. We went on a big deep dive trying to figure out if you know there was some real concrete um, you know reason to believe this, right? Because initially it was just mentioned in a in a paper, and it sounded like it was coming from a, a source from the discovery team. It sounded that way, but there was nothing but this anonymous source to go on. And the fact that the uh, European Southern Observatory, who was uh, the, the research team was apparently from, um, yeah, they said that they'd be making an announcement later in the month. And it's like, oh, this sounds juicy. So, yeah, well, I, I won't relate the whole story here. But the fact is, we then started doing a little romp and we, we got some tacit confirmation that this was absolutely real. And we were so excited, but we couldn't write about it yet. You know, we, we had to stick to, okay, allegedly, um, somebody said there's a planet next door, and, you know, we were just sort of rumbling and twiddling our thumbs like, come on, make the press release. We need to talk about this. We we know things. Um, and, in fact, I, I the third episode of my upcoming series is going to be about exoplanets and, and the study of them and searching for them. But that was especially exciting because that was confirmation of a rocky planet right next door in cosmic terms anyway and that it was within the habitable zone of its stars so it's like the potential for research is tremendous we could actually send a mission there it would take a while to get there but you know they were already talking about sending a solar or a light sail a breakthrough star shot to alpha centauri to see what's there it's like whoa divert <laughs> go to proxima right <laughs> we, we know something's there or can it can we at least loop around and, and make a quick pass through that neighborhood because we know well we now know there are three planets there and and so there's that and uh, i mean beyond that um yeah I'm, I'm i'm grateful for the way you bring up the philosophical implications of this stuff because it's like yeah the science is there and it it can often seem inaccessible but that's that's what I like to do. I like to try and break it down because it's like, yeah, if you just you spend some time, you you do your your homework, this stuff will make sense to you because it's it's by people for people. It's just people often feel intimidated by it because they don't have the background and and you know talking to someone who who does have a background, they don't always express it in terms that will make sense to the you know. The, the average person on the street. Um, and But at the same time, yeah, it's like the implications of every discovery are profound. And that is more than anything what I want to talk about, right? Because it's like... Yeah, I, yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, as you're saying all these things, we I think about, and I had conversation 
I'm, I'm lucky because I, I love space. I love space exploration. I, it's not my background, so I'm always the, the dumbest person in the room. And I love that because I just love to learn. And I've been lucky to, to sit on podcasts with, with astronauts, with people from NASA, with professors, with people that journalists like yourself. And I just cannot wait. But sometimes there is a limitation of can I understand this? So I like the concept that you're going to break it down. And and the other thing is, that from what I understand, then, is that you're going to make it a little, bit, a little bit more human as well, talking about the people that invested their time uh, historically, nowadays, uh, the project, uh, the, the researcher that studied the, these things and make possible this discovery. Because again, it's still a very early stage where we are. I mean, you're thinking about it's relatively close, and I'm kind of laughing because I don't know the number, but it's probably what few few light years. <laughs> yeah, the the nearest star. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, four four and a quarter light years. So and yeah, it's like, I'm not going it's, there on my way to the grocery store no. today. No, no. So uh, tell, yeah, tell me but, about the stories of the humans that you, that you want to tell. I mean, oh yeah, well. Um, well, throughout this series, uh, and I, I've already managed to, you know, get a few people um, on and, uh, you know, managed to interview them over the years. And so when I told them about this podcast, yeah, many of them were excited to come on and share the stories. Um, yeah, these are people who were either the, the brains behind something, you know, the, research, uh, the researchers who were part of a breakthrough, or... Yeah, uh, or who went to space, who were part of missions. And um, I, given that I've already talked to some of these people about this, I feel comfortable name dropping. But uh, yeah, um, guests that will be appearing in the first season, well, they include uh, uh, Harold Sonny White, who was the NASA researcher who worked on warp field mechanics for NASA. And he's, he's doing that again with a, a nonprofit organization. They're trying to develop in a step-by-step -step kind of way, right? Advanced propulsion systems that will eventually lead to faster than light travel. And since 2012, right? 2012, I, I, I'd heard about this, how, yeah, the, this guy from NASA looked at the equations, uh, the old Alcubierre equations, and found that they were actually doable. It's like, oh my God! So FTL is theoretically possible. Well, some some still disagree with that, but that was uh, that was the the announcement. That was his revelation, and NASA took it seriously. So all throughout, I it, ever since then, I thought, oh my God! I thought I, I thought the book was closed on that. If that is possible, think of what we could do. Um, also, Robin Hanson, the guy who coined the whole filter hypothesis idea and who does a lot of theoretical research about extraterrestrials and advanced extraterrestrials and when we might meet them. He was another. Um, and uh, also, yes, uh, someone who does not need a, much in, in the way of introductions there, but uh, yeah, Dr. Cyan Proctor, who recently went to space as part of the Inspiration4 mission. You know, she too, she's a very busy woman, but you know, I'm gonna get her on the first chance I get there. Um, and yeah, and she's, she's happy to do that because, of course, this gives people who are so inspired by what they do and who, you know, who've, who've made a big contribution, you know, 
they get a chance to talk about it to others and share that. That's yeah, that makes their day, right? I mean, it makes my day to have them on. But it's yeah, I've always found it astounding. It's like you guys are are happy and excited to be, you know, coming on a show of mine or or speaking to me for an article. No. I'm the one who's grateful here, right? <laughs> this, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I share that feeling of a hundred percent. But but mm -hmm. it also tells me that people that do this they do it because of their passion and their passion okay. is discovery learning and of course sharing that knowledge with, with other people which is also what you will be doing and uh, and and what we we aim as a as an as an objective with itsp magazine where we say knowledge is power so uh -huh. we hope to inspire people to go into stem to you know young generation and uh, and for the older generation, then maybe they're not going to be astronauts, but they can understand a little bit better what why we go to space, mm -hmm. why we explore, why we research. So to end this conversation uh, with the tease that once this goes live, the podcast Stories from Space will be live. So there will be notes in the in this podcast here to jump on the other on the other show. And uh, there'll be a pilot that uh, I already heard it. It's great. So please uh, join the conversation from day one. But I would love for you, Matt, to finish this conversation with an invitation. Who are the people that you would like to listen to your conversations, to your podcast? And what do you hope they get from it? Mm -hmm. Well, I, uh, you know, I would, I would say everyone, really. I would love it if everyone and anyone listened because it's like this is uh, definitely what I want is for this to be a show for everyone, right? You don't need a background uh, to understand what's going on. Um, it is uh, incumbent upon me to make the science make sense. And, uh, yeah, there will be very brainy people coming on the show, you know, <laughs> to talk about what they do and, uh, and uh um, but yeah, I, I promise that um, I'm going to be there to be the translator um, as uh, as best I can. Um, but yeah, it, what uh, what I definitely would love is young people who have an interest in space. You know, check this out because I want to talk to you directly. There's a lot of things that you know that uh, that I know you know you're interested in because I was too, and I want to speak directly to that. And also tell you to tell you the kinds of things that you might not know yet. And older people, adults, seniors, anyone—it's like if this is something that you've always been interested in, um, and you know you love hearing about the new developments in the stories. But of course, it's very hard to follow. And you know who has time to you know follow the literature and learn what all this stuff means? Very few people. So that's—I mean—that's what science communicators are there for. And that's who I want to be to you. I, I want to be the guy who helps make sense of this to you because like you, I'm, I, I'm not a physicist by background. I'm not an astronomer or astrophysicist by background, but I always love this stuff. So it's like, if I can make sense of it to myself, then <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you could, you could too, but you probably don't have the time. So let me do it for you. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. To, yeah, to each so one is uh, his passion and his job and, and to, mm -hmm. to bring it down to to an understandable way, the language yeah. that translates to everyone else. So, 
Again, uh, Matt, it's, it's an honor that you picked ITSP Magazine for your podcast. I, I, I can't wait for, for us to share it, for people to give us the feedback, ideas for conversations. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I well, want to invite everyone. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, I, I want to um, alert uh, the potential listeners there. Yeah, our first episode, the kickoff episode, um, will be about Artemis and going back to the moon because that is super relevant right now. Uh, but, you know, we'll branch out from there. There's no shortage of things I want to talk about and, and selecting just like a handful of them for the, you know, first two episodes was really hard. <laughs> but yeah. I think... I think I got a good mix. <laughs> I, I think it's a great uh, way to start the conversation as everybody's talking about it. I mean, it's I was uh, I was barely born when when we went to the moon for the first time. I don't remember in person, but I, you know, I was born in January 69. So, hey, it was right there <laughs> and, and we're going back. So that's an important, important things to to get started with this conversation is a little bit more understandable. The moon is right there. We see it all the time. We've been there before. And so it's yeah. a little bit easier to, to go back. Although I don't think easy is the word we should ever use when we launch rocket into space. So there's a ton of people doing that job and they don't, they're not the one that goes into, into the rocket either. They, but there is a ton of works to make that happen. So maybe we'll talk to those people too. Anyway, once yeah. again, this is uh, just a, a, a gate to open to these stories from space. And uh, we hope you're gonna follow with that. And you're also gonna keep following audio signals where we'll, we'll probably have Matt back again and other people that are going to share important stories with, with us. So. Thank you, everyone, for listening and uh, share with your friends. I think the conversation are exciting and uh, we want you to tell everyone else. Thank you, Matt. It was an honor. Thank you. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at nintex.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Audio Signals. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society, and some even beyond that.